for years, I knew almost nothing about the Highlander series of movies other than that song was, at the very least, used in the television show. And what better reason for me to get acquainted with the Highlander series of movies than just so I have a reason to hear that song again? That, of course, is Princes of the Universe by Queen. And what a song it is. And what a show this is. And I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Radlish. And this is The Long Road to Ruin. Folks, we are in the final stretch of 2015. We've got a handful of shows left before the end of the year. This being uh, one of them. We're going to do two parts for uh, Highlander. Tonight we'll tackle uh, the original and then Highlander 2. And then uh, a week from tomorrow, October 1st, we'll be looking at the last three movies. So two back-to-back episodes of Long Road to Ruin on the schedule. Then we got Jaws. Again, we broke that into two parts. Then the Daniel Craig Bond movies, the Chronicles of Riddick uh, franchise. And last, on December 3rd, The Mighty Duck. So that's what's going on in The Long Road to Ruin. And, of course, my co-host helping me out along the way, keeping me in line, and dropping off the show repeatedly. What's going on, Sean? I will introduce him as soon as he dials back in. But... uh, I am, of course, talking about Mr. Uh, Sean Comer. Let me get him on the show before he disappears again. Am I on? Hello, Sean. <laughs> yes. Hello, Sean. Hi, Mark. And hey, everybody. And guess what? If Freddie Mercury didn't make you jizz your pants just now, I'm afraid we can't be friends. <laughs> it's a great song. One could even go as far as say it's probably the best thing about the Islander movies. Did I lose you again? Uh, no, no, no. I just accidentally hit you. Sorry. And I'm also trying to figure out why there's an echo. Mark, do you have the website, the website open? No. You no, sure? sir. Yes, sir. Well, I have, I have Gmail, Facebook, the studio, the Highlander Wiki page, and the covers project. Because I was curious to see if anyone has ever covered the Princes of the Universe. Okay, let me try that. And actually, yes, there is a rather terrible cover of it. And I think I just sussed out where the echo might be coming from. Hang on a moment here. Live, everybody. Hang on, (laughs) hang on, hang on. Or you keep yammering on. Okay, no, no, it's not open on not open on my side. Although I could swear I heard it on your on your side. So, you know, whatever, liar, McLiar pants. How are things in Liar Town? Uh, it's going to be a long two hours. Okay. Um, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I, I've never actually, I never actually seen the Highlander movies. Um, I was aware of the television show that was on for a long period of time, but um, when I was coming up with the schedule for this year's Long Road to Ruins, I wanted to, uh, as I said before, I wanted to sort of dig deep, figure, you know, see, find some, some ones that were off the beaten path. Um, specifically, I wanted to find ones that were easy to watch on Netflix instead of having to rent them, uh, pay to rent them, rather. So uh, Highlander was definitely one of those. And I know that Highland, that the original Highlander is sort of a cult classic, and then uh, some of the sequels have been known to be the worst movies in the history of cinema. And I said, well, that's right up my alley. 
because God knows I love a bad movie. And Highlander 2 does not disappoint in that vein. But let's, let's get into Highlander 1 here. And as we like to do on this show, I'm going to throw it to Sean so he can give you uh, an introduction, a history lesson, if you will, on the original Highlander movie. Well, the original Highlander really doesn't have all that much of a backstory to it because it's kind of a rarity when it comes to Hollywood. It's actually a fantasy movie at perfectly honest, an extremely popular, very good fantasy movie that is not really an adaptation. It's actually from an, an original script by Russell McKay, starring, of course, Christopher Lambert, Sean Connery, and, uh, oh, God, I blanked for just a second. Oh, dear God, I can't believe I would forget this. Oh, yeah, Fancy Brown. So, in other words, um... Folks, you're going to get to sit back and watch Lord Raiden and James Bond square off with the greatest Lex Luthor ever. Um, <laughs> it does have some interesting behind-the-scenes stories about it that I'll try to get to as we go along. But to be honest with you, it was a movie that was never really expected to be a big tentpole, the start of a huge franchise, something I, something iconic. Um it, the most I can say about it is that Gregory Wyden originally wrote it as a script called Shadow Clan as an undergraduate class assignment in UCLA screenwriting program. He then proceeded to sell it for a whopping $200,000. It got made on a budget of $19, $19 million. And actually, if you can believe this, for one of the most beloved cult movies of all time, this one actually lost money at the box office. In fact, it lost 12 point... In fact, it came in at only $12.9 million. Um, so, yeah, I mean, take that into consideration. Uh, really, what it's best known for, obviously, is the soundtrack by the inimitable rock legends Queen. Uh, funny story about that, too. Queen used a rough cut of the movie to compose and write songs for it. However, although the sound, although the end credits promised an official soundtrack release, uh, that never happened. The closest anyone ever really got is the fact that the album Some Kind of Magic is actually made, made up of mostly songs from the movie. But unfortunately, there are also some tracks that have never been released and are lost to this day. Uh, most notably, Freddie, Mer- Freddie Mercury's cover of New York, New York from the third act. So, really, until we get to the more interesting stuff about Sean Connery and some of the little tricks of making the movie, that's about all the backstory there is. Okay. So, uh, the plot of this thing, uh, it shifts between present day and present day was... Uh, 1986, and it uh, it shifts between that. That's 1985, as a matter of fact. And then um, it shifts between that and start and 16th century Scottish Highlands, where we get to the backstory of our hero uh, Connor McLeod, also known as uh, Nash. So he'll uh, go back and forth between both, and uh, the movie begins with the Freebirds. 
<laughs> that was the first thing I noticed. <laughs> oh, dear God. Yeah, by all means, um, throw this movie in the face of anybody who has a perpetual 80s nostalgia boner. But on the other hand, if you ever want somebody to understand why you're a wrestling fan, never show them the first 10 minutes of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 will, it will do nothing. Not, it will do. It will do absolutely nothing whatsoever for your case. Um, but yeah, we meet uh, we meet Connor, and uh, he is engaged by Iman Fasil, uh, who is a fellow immortal. They go. They uh, they have a sword fight, and Connor decapitates him, and then absorbs his energy. And that's the first. Uh, inkling that we get uh, of what the Highlanders are and you know, what the Immortals are, and uh, and where the, the phrase there can be only one, what that all means. It, it, it starts with that first engagement. We uh, we we see our first we, we see our first electric death orgasm. <laughs> first of many. Yeah, kind of a cross between Banner turning uh, turning into the Hulk and, and an electrocution. Um. That, we, then we go to 16th century Scottish Highlands. Um, we get to again. We get to the backstory there. Uh, we go back to the present, and this is my favorite scene in the movie. They're que- they're questioning McLeod uh, on the murder that happened in the parking lot that he obviously committed um, in self defense, but still. They're questioning him. They don't have enough evidence to hold him. And there's this, there's this whole exchange between him and one of the police, which, you know, 80s dialogue ha- definitely had sort of a kitsch value to it. Um, it, it was before the, the, there was an urge to write things as close to, you know, like the wire, you know, write things as close to real as you can, which sometimes takes the drama out of it because you're trying to go for that grit, that realism. Well, not in the 80s, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus Christ. This couldn't have been more hammy uh, if if the whole thing had been shot in a butchery. My goodness. I mean, (laughs) it doesn't help, and I was talking to Sean about this before the show started, that Christopher Lambert's uh, quote-unquote Scottish accent, a little sketch, (laughs) a little weird, a little... A little uneasy uh, throughout the movie. He, he, he so, sounds he sounds he sounds throughout the movie like an ongoing Peter Lorre impression. Is what he sounds like. So he's he's trying to sound you know he's trying to like get back <laughs> in the face of the cop that's giving him shit and he just sounds ridiculous. And so I'm cracking up through the whole scene. But um, they uh, <laughs> this is where we we're, we're introduced to Brenda C Wyatt, who's an expert in me- uh, metallurgy. And uh, she starts putting together that the thing with the swords isn't right, and there's got to be more to it than that. And she uh, she sort of butts into this whole investigation. Uh, we go back to the Highlands, and this is where we meet our villain, the Kurgan, as he assists the clan Fraser against the clan Clash. Oh, but but it's but it's also after one of my one of my favorite moments when Chuck is just, and, and it's never explained why this is. He's just standing there in the middle of your standard garden variety, oh, it's Tuesday, so we must kill somebody, Scottish combat. And this is, no one will fight me. <laughs> he's, 
he just he just he's pissed as hell at this. He's and to his to his credit and in his defense, no, they never do explain why this is because it's not like anybody knows he's immortal, as we're about to find out. But this is also a good chance to point out that uh, kind of one of the one of the charms of the original Highlander, and that's the fact that the way it's shot really does give it some elements that are entirely its own. Um, those things that are just kind of unique to it. Like, it it's a lot like the, the lightsaber or the blaster sound effect in Star Wars. And namely, there's the Highlander swoosh, which is, in this movie, if you pay attention, anytime, anything moves in any direction, swoosh, anytime, swoosh, it's, I mean, Connor swings a sword, swoosh. Connor swings it the other way, swoosh. Connor puts it in the scabbard, swoosh. Somebody writes a name on a check, swoosh. Uh, Sean Connery whips out his wang, swoosh. Um, it's there the entire time, and it's comical, and it's hilarious, and it's out of place, and it's cartoony, but you love it nonetheless. Actually, one of the better parts, though, is also the Highlander transition, which is where we move from one time to the next simply by panning the camera over just so. Um, it, it is not called a Highlander transition by trade. It's just kind of known as that casually because that's what most people who have seen the first movie are going to recognize from. Well, so most people who have probably seen the series are going to recognize from. Um, but it's kind of artful, and it's kind of neat, and you could almost even, it's one of the rare times that you could argue, that you could possibly argue, Francis Ford Coppola ripped off Highland. Because if you've ever seen Bram Stoker's Dracula, um, you just start to feel after a while that it is best watched with a clean soundtrack. Because because you know there ain't there ain't nothing like watching Gary watching Gary Oldman and Winona Ryder with Freddie Mercury making proclamations about fat bottom girls. <laughs> so uh, our total synchronicity. In our next scene, we are uh, introduced to the Kurgan, who was our villain, and he quickly became one of my favorite villains in, in, in movie history. <laughs> Robert Winfrey talks about this all the time. And it, there's a, definitely a trend in movies today to make you know to kind of do the authority type villains, villains that are too cool for school, you know, or villains that you can somehow sympathize with, you know, the the rehabilitation of Maleficent type of villain. And and, and the the Kurgan is definitely sort of a throwback to the relentless, evil, mustache twirling, nothing redeemable villain. And he has motivation. He wants to be, he wants the prize. He wants to kill the last remaining Highlanders, and, that, and there's nothing more complicated than that. Well, 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 wait, 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 wait. Okay, I'm not going to do the wrong song, because I buried that, it's retired, it is never coming back, but I will disagree with you. Um, What's more, what, what, what is it? What more to his plan is there? Because I didn't get it if there was. 
Well, well, that's that's just the thing. He's not. It's never explained why exactly he has this particular mad on for Duncan, or not Duncan McLeod, um, Connor McLeod. I'm sorry, I briefly got this mixed up with the bullshit TV show. Um, all apologies, Christopher Lambert, for that. Uh, but I, no, it, it's obvious why he wants to kill every immortal. He wants the prize. It's just never explained why exactly he's so fixated on Connor, of all people. They never get around to that part. Um, because throughout the movie, he's obviously got a very big mad on for this guy. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, maybe it might be pretty, it, might, it might be that it's insinuated that McLeod um, is is one of the toughest immortals there is, and you know, and somebody. No, who has, no, 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 no. Uh, that's that's not in the beginning. Not when they first meet. At the beginning, Connor doesn't even know he's an immortal. He needs no, to explain to Yeah, I was talking about in present well, day. Why he why well, he's yeah, there but, and got a hard on for him in the beginning? Yeah, I couldn't tell you. Well, yeah, but that's but that's the thing. That's the whole point is if he had started coming after him in the present day, that would have been one thing. That would have been understandable. But it is never explained why why this obsession with wanting to relieve him of his head goes back, goes back centuries to before Connor even knew he was more, before Connor even knew there were immortals, before he even knew about all this crap about immortals and death orgasm and the lightning and there can be only one and the pride and the zeit and the magic tang and the desert and the shift and the Michael Ironside and if you believe in fairies clap your hands and Sean Connery will appear on a stage and call a Shakespearean actor a shithead and uh, moving on Okay. Um, so yeah, I I don't know what the deal is there. You're right. Um, I was referring specifically to him as a present day villain because I, for whatever reason, when I was watching this, I wasn't I, I wasn't paying as close to att- as close attention as I should have been uh, in the early flashbacks when he starts after they drive him out of town because he thinks he's they think he's uh, got the devil in him for having survived really being killed. Uh, and then he gets with the woman, and then well, that's well, well, well yeah, that's because that's I should pay more attention. Ash, that. Well, that's that, that's because as the review I watched of it, so he got stabbed in his everything and didn't die. Right. So as I said, um, they have this battle. Uh, Kurgan, you know, stabs uh, Connor every which way he can. He should have died. He doesn't. He ends up coming back. To, uh, Connor ends up coming back to his village. Um, he makes a remarkable overnight recovery. The village is then convinced it's the work of the devil. And, you know, in, in a scene reminiscent of, uh, oh, Jesus, what is it now? The witch, uh, everyone's a witch. Um, uh, the Crucible? Yeah. That's the one. In a scene reminiscent of the Crucible, you have a woman yelling, he's a, he's the devil. And everyone sort of jumps on, on board with that. He gets uh, sort of exiled. It's a, you know, you know what? It's one of those moments where everyone, where everyone, uh, everyone says, 
He's a witch. He's a witch. What? I felt better. Exactly. <laughs> so they, they were going to kill him, but then the, the clan leader just has him exiled, and we go back to 1985. Uh, we start to establish more that, that the Connor is living under the alias Russell, uh, Russell Nash. He's a wealthy antiquities dealer. Um, we see Kurgan in uh, the present, and he's taking up residence here at CD Motel. Uh, Connor is tailing Brenda to a bar, but she ends up leaving. Uh, then she ends up following Connor. And and this is the part of the movie that I like. I mean, this the flashback stuff and sort of the origin of the Highlander. I was like, eh, could, could have taken it or leave it. But I actually enjoy that there was a bit of a detective story in this movie. It isn't just sword fights and fantasy and, you know, and that sort of thing. That There was a legit attempt here to at least try to tell the story, you know, the detective story, and this woman trying to piece things together and figure this guy out, that, that's, you know, that's very elusive. And I like that part of it uh, a lot. Um, again, and again, I love the Kurgan. Everything that he's in, overacting and all, <laughs> stealing a car with an old woman in it and the old woman hanging from the from the hood for some odd reason, like Mad Max. But, you know, like I said, Lex fucking Luthor. Yeah. Always remember, um, folks, bald head and all, that is who you are watching. You are watching Lex effing Luthor. Yeah. So she's tailing Connor. Uh, they get attacked by the Kurgan. However, the police show up and they all flee like uh, roaches. Um, Brenda starts analyzing the metal fragments and discovers them to be from a Japanese katana dated about 1600 BC, um, but made with advanced technology for that particular era. She makes a date with Connor in an attempt to entrap him. Connor recognizes the ruse and tells her to stop digging and leave. Now, this next part, and, and, and we have to discuss this, uh, we get an introduction to of Sean Connery, who is playing the character Juan <laughs> Juan Lobos Ramirez, aka the worst Obi Wan ever. It's funny you mentioned Obi Wan because here we have now, now now Connery is what Scottish. No, it's not. There's a damn good reason I mentioned that. And yes, Connery is Scottish. So we have a Scot. So we have a a a, uh, a Scottish man. Oh, playing... can, I, can, I, can I do this part? Mark, 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 Mark. Can I do this part? Please, 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 please. please. I'll be your best friend. Can I do this part? Go ahead. Oh, okay, I'm taking that as yes. All right. So, try to follow me. You have the world's most famous Scotsman playing Egyptian, pretending to be a Spaniard who is training a Frenchman acting as a Scotsman who is currently at war with an actor from Ohio who is playing an ancient Russian barbarian. How cross-eyed are all of you right now? Scale of 1 to 10. Well, what I was, what I was getting to, is, and I'm glad you, you, you handled that uh, better than I did, um, better, better than I would have, but the one thing I want to point out here is this is Alec Guinness playing an Indian levels of idiotic. <laughs> only because it only because it makes no goddamn sense. None whatsoever. You cannot <laughs> because this you're 
it's the casting agent for this movie, and I'm and I'm not making this accusation, but it comes across this way, in my, in my opinion. It's like you're like accidentally racist. So like, hey, we need need you know somebody who's uh, you know, at least Mediterranean looking. You know, we're looking for sort of an Egyptian, Spanish, dark skinned, olive skinned complexion. Who you got? Sean fucking Connery. Do you know anyone that isn't white? I mean, for God's sakes. You're telling me okay. that they couldn't have brought, <laughs> there's nobody they could have brought into this movie, you know, a swarthy Italian maybe <laughs> that, that could have had to, that could have done this role. They they have to go with the whitest of white people. Uh, you know what though? Here's the thing. Here's the weird part about this. Everybody loves Connery in this role and for good reason. Unless you were talking about one of his more just indefensibly bad movies, like we're talking Zardoz bad, or what we're talking about next. The the one thing about Connery is he's just so goddamn lovable. You forget that you forget so much that he's just you know thrown out with the bathwater here, such as. Why has he sought out Connor? Why is he an Egyptian pretending to be a Spaniard when Connor has no idea who the hell he is or even that immortals aren't even a thing? Why in the hell is he hell is he so intent on training him? Why on God's green earth can they sense fear? Just so very fucking much why? But of course, somehow, he just, at least with Obi-Wan, you kind of understand the why. You get a little bit of explanation there. Now, we're going to get explanation as to what is going on with Ramirez. You are all, I 100% care and damn TV, going to be fucking dumber for having heard it, but you're going to get explanation for it, and you're going to, no, I'm not going to say you're going to like it, um, you're just going to feel your brain turn to tapioca. But in the meantime, but the, the, the neat little things about Connery, Connery here are stuff like it's Connery that reads the opening text that lays out the barest exposition. And the funny thing about that is Connery recorded that in his bathroom and the echoey effect. Also, uh, Connery informed Russell Mulcahy that he was only going to have, I believe it was about three days to shoot his part, and actually laid down money with Mulcahy that they couldn't get all his lines done, all his lines done in time, all his scenes shot in time, and just nail it all. Guess what? Sean Law. I'm very familiar with that phrase, Sean Law. So... He's he's almost a more beloved part of this movie than his two main stars are, which is stunning when you consider that he's only in a grand total of I think maybe about ten fifteen minutes. But I you know what you know what it's Connery. Thus, of course, are you really going to argue? Yeah, I mean, I totally get what you're saying. Is that, you know, he definitely adds, like, a certain degree of gravitas to the movie. Um, I know he, he's a beloved character and everything, but I still take issue with the fact that you have a character called Juan Sanchez Villas Lobos Ramirez, 
who's an Egyptian immortal, and you come up with, I know who to get for this. I, I got it. This, and this will probably sell the picture. Sean fucking Connery. Because when I think Egyptian, um, playing a, a, Egyptian, who uh, is also a Spaniard living in Spain, I think Sean Connery. Hey, guess what? Everybody out there who is somehow still possibly pitching a fit about Dragon Ball and The Last Airbender, shut the fuck up. Just right now, just shut the fuck up because Sean Connery played a Spaniard, played an Egyptian pretending to be a Spaniard. Because well, he shows so at this point, um, as I said before, Connor is living in exile. He's taken a wife, um, and you know they're living uh, sort of in solitude when uh, Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez shows up and explains to him um, what the immortals are and that he's well, immortal. Well, let's, 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 let's be clear here. We also get one of the best character debuts in the history of everything because basically. You know, like, like the absolute embodiment of Trojan Man, he rides up while Connor is stuffing Heather's haggits. <laughs> just, just rears, just rears right up like no big deal. Just, just you know, right, right when he's playing her pipes. Yeah, it's it's, and I think he actually makes mention of that, like, because you know the the costume they have the Connery decked out in is looking he looks a bit foppish. So I think they gave they gave uh, Lam, uh, Lambert some lines for just, like, what are you dressed up as, Peacock? Um, and I think he calls him that like a couple more oh, times. Oh yeah, yeah, he 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 calls him that in the boat when he con- when he's trying to uh, balance on the edges of it, and uh, Connery sneezes. And threaten to just tip the whole damn thing over. Right. And that's it. And that's another that's another exchange of dialogue where I'm just laughing at Lam uh, Lambert because he's again like trying to be threatening and sounds so tough and it's just like, you know, what are you doing, Peacock? And it's like, your Scottish accent is terrible. You can't. It's like, I don't know how thick his French accent was at the time that they filmed this, but he's having a rough time hiding it. Oh, uh, he can't. He, he he just can't. All all apologies to Lord Raiden, but no, no, you're just no, no. You're 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 at about a Tommy Wiseau level of high an accent. So moving on, um, the, he explains what the quickening is. He explains that. The immortals have to decapitate one another, and you know, they take their energy. Uh, the last surviving immortal will win the prize. Um, Ramirez tells Connor that the Kurgan, by that time, the strongest of the immortals must not win the prize, or mankind will enter an age of, uh, enter a dark age. Um, unfortunately, one night while Connor is away, the Kurgan uh, attacks and decapitates Ramirez. He also rapes the wife, um, but we won't find that out until a little bit later. Uh, back in present day. In Central Park, Connor meets a longtime friend, fellow immortal Sunda Castagir. Uh, they talk about the impending gathering of immortals, which precedes the final battle, and they joke about old times. 
Uh, Brenda has by now discovered that Connor has been alive for centuries. She's sort of pieced this all together. She's gone back through his archives, and she's realized that, like, you know, I think it's like a, like a kid dies. He takes um, he takes their name. Um, so he's been living under false identities, faking his death every few decades, and signing his assets over to children who died at birth and assuming their identities. And so that's the scheme. She figures this all out. When she confronts Connor about it, um, he uh, ends up demonstra- demonstrating his own morality. He like like stabs himself. Um, so after that revelation, now, now this was the weirdest transition in the movie for me. I really had a rough time with this. So she figures out that he, that, you know, what the scam is, and he goes and demonstrates that he's immortal. At which point she falls madly in love with him. Not runs in fear. <laughs> not, not goes, okay, I get it, so explain to me why you're having sword fights, instantly falls in love with the guy. And I guess I've heard weirder explanations for why women fall in love with bad men, but this one really is at the top of the list of odd ones. Like, there's no, like she went from zero to 100 in terms of being into this guy. Because up to this point, all she's trying to do is figure out what the hell happened in the parking lot that night. And now she's like, oh, I'm immortal. Swoon. <laughs> it was a, it, there's a big, the big problem with the writing in this movie, where, you know, as you said at the top of this discussion, things are sort of thrown into the plot, and there's really no explanation as to, as to why it's there, you know, including why she has any feelings for this guy at all. And, and you know what? Cult movies do that, and which is, it's kind of sad with her because she's actually got more fleshed out. Uh, motivations and one of the more fleshed out characters of the entire movie in a movie full of characters who are there pretty much just to be there. But ultimately, in the end, all she's really there for is just to get kidnapped and bait Connor into one last confrontation with the Kurt. And granted, it's it's an excellent sequence. Um, It's it's so excellent that another sequel a few movies later would steal it virtually shot for fucking shot. Um, <laughs> uh, with, with the much less impressive Mario Van Peebles in the place of Clancy Brown. Uh, but at the same time, it, it's sort of a waste of even having her there. She serves her purpose, but, you know, when it's kind of a lame, shallow purpose in the first place, it's like, why bother? Uh, you managed to somehow engage me with one of the most bizarre mentor figures in movie history, um, whose motivations and origins you never ever explained. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and meanwhile, the the main character's latest main love interest, and kind of the genesis of the underlying theme of this is the bitch of immortality. Of immortality, you know, everybody you love is going to eventually die, and you're still going to be traipsing about. Um, is just kind of nothing. Uh, she she's about the equivalent. I'm not opposed. I'm not opposed to him having a love interest in the movie, and sort of contrasting that with this idea that you know, high, uh, oh, immortals sure, sure, yeah. be married or have a relationship. You know, and, and it's a very strong scene when he's holding, uh, in the flashback, where he's holding Heather and she dies of old age in his arms. And, you know, and so I think it plays well into the character that he's cold and 
or resistance to having romantic relationships. And had they given a better reason other than their two warm bodies in the same room for her to fall in love with him, I would have been okay with it. The problem is that's exactly what happened. She goes from no interest to love interest with nothing in between. It's as if George Lucas wrote this script. Uh, you know, basically, you know who she reminds me of? She's kind of the prototype of uh, Sarah in The Crow. Uh, she's, she might as well just kind of be a thing that happens to the character. Yeah. You know, not, you know, not, not really any kind of character herself. Um, well, I made the I made the George Lucas crack because a lot, you know, one of the biggest, uh, and I don't want to go off on a tangent about Attack of the Clones, but you know, one one of the biggest criticisms of Attack of the Clones is there was no reasonable reason why Padme should have ever fallen in love with Anakin. He didn't do anything. It was like they literally fell in love because they had five minutes alone together. That was it. That was you know, they <laughs> they were on a planet for like a day while she was in hiding. And over the course of a long conversation, she fell in love with the guy. It was like, wait a minute, what? How's that happen? You know, and it's like, you know, and so the criticism is George Lucas put that in the movie because they had to fall in love in order to have babies, Luke and Leia. And that's kind of how this feels. It was like, well, we have to have Christopher Lambert's character uh, fall in love with somebody, so he just does. And don't bother me with details. It's like, well, no, that's not good movie writing. Well, I mean, it's, you could argue that it's thrifty. And again, it's, it's kind of why that this is a cult movie instead of a movie that stands out for being really great filmmaking. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it has an outstanding look. Uh, Russell Mulcahy's music video background is actually really kind of put to good use with his editing, his use of music to establish pacing, uh, his, his cuts, put of um, and his tra- his transitions, even the fact that a good bit of the final fight scene with the Kurgan, which, by the way, props to our outstanding title card artist Benjamin J. Cologne of Soul XO and soon the and soon the Atop Fourth Wall movie fame, uh, for kind of riffing off that for this week's outstanding art. Excellent job. Yeah, no, I'm, always um, I'm always the villain in his title cards. Like if he has his uh, as opposition to one another, you're always you're always Optimus Prime. I'm Megatron. In this one, you're the you're Christopher well, Lambert. I'm Kurgan. Well, it's it's one of two things. Either he does that, or he finds some way to make me your your tormentor. Your what? It's your tormentor, basically. Basically, no, the, yeah, the person, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the the person subjecting you to all kinds of hurdy stuff for my own pain and Um I But anyway, I just um, found that funny. Oh, that's just, <laughs> sorry. He's reminding me that I got to be Ash once, which was also very cool. Well, that was, well, that was yeah, the one time one of these I got to be the hero. Well, well yeah. I mean, he he kind of gets this this little dynamic we have that you're the straight man, you're the ringmaster of this circus. And I'm the wily clown that's always shooting seltzer down your pants. Um, if, 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 if you are you are the Dante Hicks of this, and I and I am the Randall Graves. That's not the side of it. Uh, but anyway, the, the point uh, that no, I was getting don't get me wrong. 
hang on before this goes any further. Don't get me wrong. I love all of I, I love all of Ben's artwork. I to this day I, I still love the fact that he made me Bane and Jonas Baby Bane <laughs> yeah. in the Dark Knight picture. That that's still hanging on my wall, like my prized possessions, next to one of my club posters that I'm hanging on my wall. Um, along with the other the other two that he sent, uh, you know, Transformers and uh, Batman the Animated Series. But you know, I and I'm always very appreciative of the artwork that he sends us. It's just one of the things I notice where I'm like, why am I the villain in most of these? And I'm okay with it. I just it's just it's like what you know. It's like he never switches it. Like it, I, I'm always the villain when he and you're always the villain. I'm like, what made him decide this? I would love to get inside his head and be like, so what makes me the villain in your mind? But that's not what we're here to talk about. Um, anyway. But um, the, the point that the point that I was trying to get at is that that scene that the title card is aping. Um, was shot was shot in several in several moments by um, taping a camera to an office chair and then kicking it across the floor to achieve that effect. And it is something that simple is is that remarkably effective. And then you also have to take into consideration that in the end, when when Connor is having his Oh my God! Grab the extra towel, electro orgasm of death. Um, and he and he and he's up and he's up in the air. You can see the wires. You can see them hanging him, hanging him up there. So the, the so the more advanced effect is the more obvious one. But the other stuff is the one where you go, really? They, they didn't have an actual dolly. That was how that was how they did it. Just take a chair across the across the floor. Um, I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing you would expect um, to hear uh, that Robert Rodriguez when he was when he was making El Mariachi, and in fact, it would surprise me if that probably was the way he shot that. Um, but you know, the, the point being, visually, it's an extremely fun movie. It's very well shot. The sword play is awesome. In fact, I kind of want an Ikea broadsword like the curtain. Where can I get me one of those? Well, hell, again, I, one of the hell, I mean, as I'm doing the plot summary, um, which I'm taking directly off of Wikipedia, by the way, one of the things that it leaves out, though, is half of the fun stuff with Kurgan. There, you know, like I said, there's exactly. a bit where he a car and is driving around the city and, like, Sticking his tongue out, and there's an old woman hanging from the car. There's this like side plot with a, with I guess a, an ex-marine or something, where uh, you know where he like takes an Uzi into the alley where um, where uh, Kurgan is uh, is actually like fighting Castagier. And I mean, there's just so much fun stuff in the movie with with just Kurgan. Well, well like, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. That's that's the whole point. Is it's got a solid enough story. It's got an interesting enough premise that it keeps you engaged. And it's the type of thing where if you just give it the most bare bones description, anybody well, with an ounce of excitement in them is going to sit there and go, hell yeah, I mean, let's give this a shot. Um, but the problem is it's kind of really thin on, on everything else. I mean, it's one of those movies that seems like with just a little bit more effort, with a little bit more polish, 
it could have been another. It could have been another Star Wars. Um, hey, Christopher Lambert needs to talk less. <laughs> I would have preferred uh, yeah. his character do more of a Tom Hardy as Mad Max. Just grunt periodically. Uh, uh yeah, that that maybe would have been better. But <laughs> you know, and that's and that's really what it comes down to. Is it a fun movie? Oh God, yes, it's tremendously fun. It's one of those that you never want to turn off if you happen to be thumbing through the cable channels and it's on. Um, visually impressive? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. There's, there's absolutely something that, that an amateur filmmaker could learn from watching. Is it a great overall movie? Uh, not in that Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings kind of thing. No. So, um, to, finish up, to finish up the plot summary, um, so he has one final massive battle with Kerrigan. It's a giant sword fight, which George Lucas should have rewatched before he made Revenge of the Sith. You know, in order to, to in order to review how to make a how to make a sword fight something that you can really buy into and, and you know something with stakes to it. But um, uh, he Kerrigan uses Brenda as bait. Connor goes to save her. They have their sword fight. He eventually ends up winning. And beheads Kerrigan. He receives the prize. Which manifests, itself, which manifests itself, as Sean said before, as you know, giant electro uh, orgasm. Um, this makes him mortal and capable of having children. Connor returns to Scotland with Brenda. Connor now has awareness of people's thoughts around the world and uses this to encourage cooperation and peace. Yay! That's, so that's the movie. There should have been only one. <laughs> yes. And you promised to be only there. one. You son of a bitch! You promised only one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard with this because it's like if you you know had this been like a massive success, and they were like, oh, we got to have more movies. It's like, well, the whole premise of this thing is that it, you know it gets down to the nitty gritty, and there's only one left. Um, what do you? So, like, how do you? How do you go back and rewrite this thing? And God knows they tried. Oh, Lordy. And, uh, and instead, we got the movie that, I kid you not, I kid you not, kid, is the reason why I can see this show. Back when Jeremy Lambert and I were still doing Bad Movie Review Club, and by the way, Jeremy, congrats a million billion times over on your engagement, man. Well deserved. Much, uh, much love and luck to both of you. Um, what happened to him? He's going to be married. Oh yeah, Mazatov. Yes, yeah. Jeremy got engaged. Um, so yeah, props to the guy who got me in. Well, one of the two guys who got me in the podcast in the first place. Because to the other guy, hey Sammer, how you doing? Um, but when I first. When I first came up with this, it was because Jeremy and I had a sh- had a show called Bad Movie Review Club, where every week we would pick a one-off, so bad it's good movie, and just just take a good sixty to ninety minutes or so to just rake it good and solidly over the coal, just really make it feel it. Um, my favorite two episodes of which being when we did Teeth and when I tricked him into watch into watching Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie. 
um, which I am eternally sorry for. But at one point, I started thinking about other possible ideas, and two of the movies that came to mind were sequels, but the thing was, having him do those with me and really understanding why they were so damn bad would mean forcing him to watch at least one, if not more than one, other before that, to really kind of get up on the whole thing. And if they weren't movies he was big fans of, I thought, well, that's not fair to him. I can't really ask him to do that. But then I got to thinking, what if? What if I came up with a series where we went movie by movie and charted the rise and fall or sometimes just continuous rise or sometimes just precipitous fall of various major franchises. One of those movies was Hellraiser Revelations. We shall never speak of it again. <laughs> the other one of those the other one of those movies was Zombie Jesus, we're finally gonna do it. Highlander two the quickening. Mark, in the hallowed words of David Tennant, I'm sorry. I am so sorry. <laughs> I watched this back-to-back one day when I was home with my son. Um, you know, I have a couple of days off during the week, depending on which week it is. And um, I knew, and I was trying to find the str- you know, streaming versions of any of the Highlander movies. And the last three are on Netflix, and I was trying to find the first two. Fortunately, they weren't on Amazon Prime. I actually used to spend money on them. So I'm like, let me check CanIStreamIt.com. It's now on my websites. And I was like, oh, they're on Hulu. I can watch. I, that's great. So I spent a day with my son at home, kind of, you know, playing with his cars and his balls. And I watched this. And it was so funny to me because I'm, I'm, I got to the first Highlander, and I'm like, okay, I can see why people like this. There's definitely parts about it that are, that are fun. And I get to the second one, and and immediately they they get into this whole thing about the ozone layer being depleted and the, it retcons um, them being immortal, uh, and then said that, that they're aliens, and there's this war going on, and I'm like, what the fuck? Like within five minutes of watching of watching Highlander, I'm like, I feel like I'm watching a movie that doesn't even belong in this franchise, like. Whoever wrote this didn't. It was like they they had a script, and they're like, "Quick, we need some. We need a Highlander two sequel," and they just grabbed the first script they found on some guy's desk and stamped Highlander on it. And you know, like, like, like this wasn't supposed to be a Highlander movie. It couldn't have been. But they just kind of shoehorned Highlander stuff in there so they had a script, and nobody bothered to have any like care or you know in mind. Was making it. They were just like, "Oh, fuck it!" You know, people like Highlander. Put Highlander on there. People will go see it. And uh, it definitely deserves its reputation as one of the worst films ever released. This thing is garbage from start to finish. It is uh, shot bad. It is acted bad. It has got. And I'm, I'm going to come back to this a little bit later because uh, if you follow me on Facebook, you know that I that I advertise a show as. Watch me defend this movie. And there is something that's defensible about it. And I'll, and I'll get to it in a little bit. But 
the, take, putting aside the part that's defensible about it, this has got to be one of the most cockamamie, up-its-own-ass plot I've ever had the uh, dissatisfaction of having to sit through. Like, this movie doesn't know what it wants to be. So, you know, it's like... You know, it, like it went like it, it tries to be sci-fi, but it's it's just uh, it's terrible. Um, and not even Sean Connery could save it. Like, oh, it's no, 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 no! It's oh, it's oh, sunshine! It's worse than that. <laughs> this this movie, this movie, I I want you to remember this, okay? The character, supporting actor, great Michael Ironside chipped one of his teeth shooting a fight scene with Lambert while making this movie. Christopher Lambert accidentally lost part of one of his fingers when Ironside accidentally chopped it off during a fight scene. Those two quite literally broke their bodies to make a damn movie that's the combined like of Christopher Lambert John Connery, Michael Ironside, and John C. Dr. Perry Cox McGinley could not save. They could not rescue this horrible movie. Oh no. Oh no 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 no. And once more, it's another it's another Highlander movie that lost money. Uh, budget of thirty four million made just about if you rounded it up rounded it up and even Thirty million. Um, oh, and then there's the fact. There's the alternate version. Oh, the many, many alternate versions. There were two theatrical versions of this movie. Of this movie released, the British version actually runs ten minutes longer than the American one. One's cut and also features an extended prologue that attempts to better flesh out why Connor created a shield that blocks out the goddamn sun. Um, yeah, we'll get to the plot summary in a minute, because believe me, you're going to be wanting to sit down, and you're going to want to dose up on the drama for this one, because we are taking you for a ride. In 1995, Russell Mulcahy got to make what is known as the Renegade version. The last several episodes, if you've heard me continually warning Mark, don't you dare cop out and watch the Renegade version. You'd be a man and watch the theatrical cut. Well, this is why. Everything we are about to explain about, about the plot of the original movie that involved the immortals all being from an alien planet called Dice. Okay, Mulcahy had to make an entirely separate reconstructed cut of the movie to cut that out Rearrange things, add several cut and add several cut sequences, just to eliminate that shit and try to make this make some semblance of sense. By the way, it still barely, it still barely does, and the cut still insists that the immortals are from, are from, you know, instead of unspecified distant past, past Earth, and were banished or banished to the four corners of the globe by various priests to keep the pri- to keep the prize out of any of their hands. Um, but just 
the entire bloody thing is an absolute utter. Oh, oh, oh. Um, by the way, I, I stand corrected. I just put the other page in my notes. That wasn't it. No, there was yet another one. And there was the 2004 special edition, interpret special however you will, um, made by the producers, which is almost the exact same of it was the Renegade version, but with just a few cuts, including some new CGI special effects. Yeah, that never works out very very well. And uh, just a little bit of extra voiceover by Christopher, by Christopher Lambert. Um, however, none of it, no version of this movie in any way resembles something good, watchable, or fucking fun. This thing will emanate an evil red glow from your DVD player. Avoid it. Do not do not taunt the Highlander theatrical version. It is super happy fun ball. All right. Now, I'm going to I'm going to go sideways on you here and I want to talk about something that I recently did here on the Rattlers and Broadcasting uh network and on my YouTube page. As people uh, might know from listening to the show, one of the elements we do is we try to pitch ways that would have made the movie better. Um, sometimes we pitch entirely new movies into a franchise, you know, instead of the one that I, that we actually saw. Um, those who are, you know, people who are in the network and people who are fans of it have actually said it's one of the things that they really enjoy is that we're not just you know, it's not just Mystery Science Theater 3000 here. We're not just poking fun at something and that you know, and sort of leaving a trail of fire behind us. And it's like, okay, well, what, what, how could this have been improved? Um, similarly, whenever I go on, uh, everyone loves a bad guy, or when um, Robert and I do the movie reviews for contemporary movies, uh, if if need be, like for the Fantastic Four being a really good example of this, I'll pitch alternatives to what we actually saw in the theater or what I would do next. Um, and I won't get into the whole thing now, but on Jesse Starcher's source material, his year anniversary show, uh, he had me on as a guest, and I pitched three Batman movies. Um, what, this came out of the fact that Warner Brothers wants more Batman movies with Ben Affleck, and I thought, okay, well... If I were, if I were have, have the opportunity to write for Warner Brothers, here's what I would do with Ben Affleck, and here's who I, this is the Robin I would use, and here's who I would cast. And I decided, and I and I took that audio, and uh, posted it on my YouTube page. And tomorrow night, um, since we're off, since my wife's birthday, uh, instead of hearing this, uh, you'll hear a replay of just the audio of me pitching those movies. And the point of bringing all that up is that when I look at Highlander 2, somewhere in the bones of this movie was a decent plot. Okay? I'm not saying the movie is good. I'm not saying overall the plot is good. Okay? I'm saying that if you, if you take out all the, the Highlander stuff, right, stop trying to shoehorn this into the Highlander franchise and just let it be the movie that, it, that I think it could have been, um, and you take out the alien part of it, and you just focus on the guy 
who tried to save the world from um, from the the rays of the sun. You know, because one of the plot of this thing is the ozone layer has I think been eaten up, and so they put this this sort of uh, shield over the earth in order to uh, shield um, shield people from the radiation. Uh, but that causes eternal darkness, and so he's you know hated by humanity. And people, you know, and he kind of goes into uh, isolation. Years later, there's a, a group of rebels who have learned that uh, the ozone has actually repaired itself, but the company that owns the shield won't take it down because it's, you know, making money hand over fist for charging people for that for that protection. And so they go to get the guy that created the shield in the first place because they want to take it out. Look, I've heard of worse plots, okay? And if you just wanted to, if you were just pitch that movie, that's not a bad movie. It's, you know, in fact, it's very similar to things that we've seen before. You know, it, it's got the trope of the evil corporation, which is such a trope. Rob Winfrey did an entire episode on evil corporations on Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. You've got the, uh, you, you've got our hero who has fallen from grace who then goes into hiding, who they have to sort of draw back out again. Mark, you there, buddy? Mark, Mark, blog talk. Don't you dare! Don't you dare decide we're up after an hour. Hey, um, if anybody out there can hear me, would you mind uh, sending me a Facebook message or pizza? Send me either a Facebook message or pizza. Kind of hungry, missed dinner, working, podcasting, not much time to eat. Could really go for a large deep dish. All right, I'm here. Pepperoni. <laughs> Sky apparently had other had other views on Highlander too. <laughs> Sky's got to go. Could, no, um, Mark, Mark. Are you talking about? Could Could you guys hear everything yeah. I said? No, I got. I came in with something about pizza. Yeah, I was bas- okay. I was just curious because I was basically <laughs> yeah, Ben says we're still on. I was basically telling everybody you can hear everything. Send me a Facebook message or pizza. I'd really like a pizza. Been working late, skip right. dinner. Could really go for a deep dish with large with pepperoni. Maybe yeah, I heard the deep dish part. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, in terms of some sci-fi goes. It, it's, it uses a lot of the tropes that we're all familiar with. And again, I've heard worse. Um, the problem is, you ha- yeah, so you have this sort of bare bones uh, plot there, which isn't that bad of a movie, but when you start to pile on it, you know, it, ha- you, it has to be a Highlander movie. And not only that, but it has to be a Highlander movie where the immortals are aliens. And then on top of that, the production is so bad that it looks like, you know, I, I mean, I've seen student films that looked better. That's where this, that's where this thing starts to have problems. Um, I'm going to go ahead and bring on our title card artist, Mr. Benjamin Cologne. Hey, Ben, how's it Hi going? Ben. Hi, guys. Hi, Ben. I was, I was very worried that my Facebook message to Mark is what kicked him off of the, off the air. So I'm glad that wasn't the case because that happened immediately after I said, after I told you I was ready to call in. 
It's entirely possible. Uh, yeah, if I cut a this part in a roughly westward direction, it may knock us off the air. Yeah, so I figured so, I'd get my two cents in here while I still can. Um, you, you absolutely can. I'm going to throw it to you in just a second, but I want to reiterate, I love all your artwork. I'm honored to be in it. <laughs> I just don't know why I'm always the bad guy. I'll I'll tell I'll tell you exactly why. Ninety nine percent of the time, I just go with who who most closely resembles who. So, <laughs> sorry, Mark. Sorry, Mark. Sean has more hair than you. You're the Kurgan. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> how did, wait a minute? But how did I end up being Megatron? You're angrier. I don't know. <laughs> Flip the coin. <laughs> Good thing. Yeah, you know right. that 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 that, that kind of makes sense. I got to be Tony Stark, and you got to be Rhodey. <laughs> Alrighty. Um, so Ben, you you were inspired to call the show. Thank you for not trolling us like the good folks did uh, last Thursday. I don't know if either one of you heard that show, but uh, uh, Robert Cooper and I reviewed Slayer. We had a pair of guys call into the show, both with the same shtick, by the way. <laughs> I just love that we have trolls. I love that we have them. So, um, other uh, strangers are listening, and they're amused enough to call it a troll. Up. There's something about that that I just find endearing. Yeah, no, we 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 had a good laugh about it. We we didn't take it to heart at all. But what has inspired you to call in tonight, Ben? What do you have to say for yourself? Um, I just figured I'd take this opportunity because um, this is something that I've talked about, and um, you know, I like. I like Highlander. I like the, the first movie. I try to put as much distance between me and the sequels as possible. Um, but I really like the first movie. And it's funny because um, what I talked to you guys about was, you know, in four sequels that this movie has had, they have not have not even come close to getting it right. And it seems like it's such a difficult thing. They've done, you know, they've done retcons and they've done two crappy post-apocalyptic future sequels. They've done all kinds of things that just didn't work. And I feel like I was able to come up with a relatively simple Highlander sequel like five minutes after the last, you know, uh, the last time I watched the original one. Uh, And I can't possibly, this is so, this is, this, it seems like such an easy, like, you know, point A to point B, point C thing that I, I feel like I can't possibly have been the first person to think of this, but I don't know how somebody who has any kind of uh, power in Hollywood has not, you know, was not able to do something with this sooner. But the whole idea, here's the thing, with, with the end of the, the end of the first Highlander movie kind of in a way without even intending to sets itself up for a sequel if you, you know, if you're willing to take some chances. Not even big chances, but just chances. Uh, bear with me if I stumble through some of this. I didn't have a chance to write this down. But um, you go by you go by the idea, like, you know, the basic idea, you know, and other movies have done it, like in, in, in Jet Li's The One and that, that kind of thing. You know, the whole premise of, of Highlander is basically all of these immortals are killing each other and they all absorb, you know, the, the the power of, you know, whoever they've killed. And 
and when there, you know, there can be only one, and when there is one left, uh, he gets the prize, and the prize is ultimate power and basically godlike omnipotence. But if you go by the by the logic, you know, and and by the basic idea, you know, in in movies like the one and things like that, um, energy can never be created or destroyed. It can only change form and and change uh, states uh, from one form to another. It also is stated like. Connor McCloud now is mortal. He can have children and he can die. So where does all of that energy go when Connor dies? And that's your sequel premise. Basically, Connor dies and all of the energy that he has absorbed from all of these immortals is released back into the earth, back into the world, or back into wherever. And See, over, over whatever period and, and whatever period of time it takes oh, look, there's a whole new generation of immortals that are starting to be born. All of a sudden, the whole thing has to start all over again. And you can make it so that, you know, maybe this is not the first time this has happened. Maybe this has happened many times over many thousands of years. Or maybe, you know, maybe it's happened at least once before, you know, Conor McCloud became, you know, uh, became the sole, you know, holder of the prize. This is this is not something that it took me a long time to think of. So like I I'm, I'm almost positive that somebody else has thought of this, but like I I don't know like did somebody go to whoever, you know, the producers of this movie and 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 pitch this to them and they just said, "Nah." Like No, we're going to make them aliens. That makes more sense. Yeah. Well, that doesn't I mean, you you're sort of um sort of downplaying it, but I think that's pretty brilliant because I was sitting here thinking as as we were doing the show if you have to make a sequel to this based on how it ends, like I don't even know how you would do it. And that's that simple an explanation. It actually kind of reminds me of the season finale of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. with the Terrigen myth getting into, uh, getting into the tuna. Um, you know, and having just these random happenings of people getting superpowers. It would be you know, something similar to that where, you know, the, the energy, when, when he dies, the energy is released and it just starts hitting random people around the world. And what's, what, would, what would have been great about that in terms of like what the studio seems to have wanted is that they, they seem to have been very stuck on the idea that this needed to be a sci-fi flick. Well, okay, he's got to be, what, in his 40s? When, uh, I mean, as far as, I know he's like you know, hundreds of years old, but <clears throat> and he looks to be about like you know late 30s, early 40s when, um, when Highlander takes place. You figure forty years in the future, you could have you could sort of set up a whole new world here when he when he dies and um, the energy is dispersed from here to there, and then you've got you've got the makings of a great movie as you know you've got all these new people, good and bad, figuring out what to do with their with their newfound power. Certainly would have been better than Highlander too, at the very least. Yeah, and I wanted to, you know, the other thing was I also, you know, they, they kind of missed a lot of opportunities and, they, you know, they missed all kinds of opportunities in all of the sequels, but they missed an opp- the opportunity to, like, really make this feel like it's very global and very, you know, like, people from all over the world. Like, you could have, you know, like, you could have Highlanders that are, or, you know, immortals that are, that are samurai that fight with swords. You can have you know, Vikings that fight with axes. You can have all kinds of different fighting styles, and you can have, you know, you cast people that didn't necessarily have to act, but just could, you know, kick ass in a fight scene. 
you know, there's plenty of them. And, and in fact, they did cast, you know, a couple of them throughout the series and proceeded to waste them completely. I'm so very sorry, Donnie Yen. Um, you know what I would have done? I would have specifically focused on Baltimore and how a handful of people in uh, the city of Baltimore, like Omar, ended up becoming immortals. That's what I would have done. And there is your wire reference for the evening. <laughs> Omar coming. There can be only one, yo. Ah. That was my two cents. And one last thing, Sean. Um, by the way, Hellraiser Revelations, you will totally speak of it again, and you know it, so don't make promises you can't keep, okay? I goddamn hate that movie. It didn't even come from Clive Barker's bunghole. <laughs> Fucking top right, player, Pinhead. <laughs> thanks for calling in, Ben. No problem. Uh, by hey, the way, come back, Ben. By the way, the Jaws card is done, and um, you you're gonna like it, and you're gonna laugh. <laughs> I can't wait. I have never seen Jaws, so I hope. Uh, you know, I hope I, I get the reference. I'll, I'll start watching Jaws after we're done with the uh, Highlander. But I'm very excited for this. Did you get? Did I? Did you hear at the beginning of the show what the rest of the schedule is? I think I missed the first five minutes, so unfortunately, no. Okay. You, you can get no, at me about November. Oh. Yeah, November fifth. There's only we're only doing one show in October. Um, that's Jaws, and that's over two parts. Um, and on November fifth, we're doing just the Daniel Craig. James Bond movies. On November 19th, we're doing the Three Chronicles of Riddick movies. And then our last show is December 3rd, and we'll be doing the Mighty Ducks trilogy. Oh, my. <laughs> All right, we'll talk. So get drawn, kid. We'll definitely talk. Hey, I got New York Comic Con coming up. I'm trying to work far, far ahead. By the way, October 8th through 11th, I'll have it. T- I'll be at uh, table... Table twelve sixty nine at New York Comic Con. God damn it, Mighty Ducks! That means I have to wear a fucking Anaheim jersey. Son of a bitch. Go ahead, give out that plug again, Ben. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll be at uh, New York Comic Con. I'll be exhibiting at New York Comic Con Table twelve sixty nine at, at New York Comic Con uh, October eighth through the eleventh at the Javits Center in New York City. So and I'll have all kinds of stuff uh, for sale, including the completed uh, Blood Gun number one comic that I made for Lewis Lovehog for the yes. Wall movie. I actually got print copies, and I will be selling them. Has anyone ever asked, besides my wife, has anyone ever asked you for copies of the title card art from these shows? Has any, like, has anyone been interested in uh, what you've done? Nobody's asked me, but uh, you know, I've had a few people that uh, you know that like it, but. I, it's very hard for me to part with anything that I draw, so uh, it would take a lot. And usually, I'm more comfortable yeah. giving out prints. Gotcha. I'm just curious if, if um, you know, people were like, "Oh, there's this guy that does these like, sort of movie uh, mock-ups for for a podcast." You know, I mean, it's it's really great. I I I wish uh, I had more of them to hang on my wall. Uh, I was curious to see if there's anybody out there that likes them. Well, you know, I hear you know I hear from a lot of the, probably a lot of the same people you guys hear from about the show itself. So, 
Alrighty. Well, thanks for calling in, uh, Ben. We'll we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. Looking forward to seeing the Jaws one. Take care, guys. Thanks, ben. Later. Okay. Um. So with that being said, I mean, I don't I don't want to go through this whole plot. <laughs> I mean, I talked a little oh, bit about what oh, about that's what there was here in terms of the bare bones part of it, but then there's this whole other thing which I didn't even understand about um. <laughs> <laughs> about him being an alien and then being sentenced to live on Earth as immortals. Oh, that's okay, Mark. You sit down and take a breather. Kids, everybody, sit down, find a comfy chair, get yourself a warm glass of milk and some cookies, and Uncle Sean is going to explain to you the numerous ways why there are diapers full of green apple splatter baby shit that are more solid than the plot of Highlander 2 and why it is utterly irredeemable. Ready? Okay. So, we start off in August of 1994, and the ozone layer is fixed. Okay, as we all know, that's more or less plausible. That's just about where the believability of this plot ends. Because, by 1999, supposedly, Connor McLeod is supposed to know everything. Apparently, the fine print of everything excludes basic earth science that an 8th grader could have explained to them, and say, yeah, that makes sense. Because in the course of coming up with coming up with this stupid electromagnetic shield, Connor neglects the entire the entire fact that yes, this will not only pitch the earth into darkness, but will cut it off from the source of all life. Cutting it off from the source of all life kinda of tends to mean things like mean things like oh death. Yeah, that would be cheap among them. Death. Dark and Weeping, high average global temperature, high humidity, starvation, death. And since the world rightfully rightfully hates him for going full Mr. Burns on them, uh, he decides <laughs> to go into hide, go into hiding. Then one time he's sitting what he's sitting watching a performance of Wagner's good Wagner's German thing. <laughs> When all when all of a sudden Obi Wan Zilla Lobos Ramirez Ramirez comes to him and makes him remember remember his past his past on the bullshit planet planet lost doom set or as we're apparently going to call it dice where Connor and Ramirez no you know what don't don't even bother asking yourself why the aliens who in the first movie just so happened to be Scottish and Egyptian Spanish, um, happened to actually be named McLeod and Ramirez on this distant alien planet, alien planet, because God knows we don't want the coincidence fairy to throw her back out again. <laughs> uh, are both mem- are both members of members of a resistance movement against a tyrannical government? led by Michael Ironside's General Katana. Yes, in the movie about sword fighting, someone actually musters the cojones, the great big wrinklies, to actually, with a straight face, suggest that they name a character General Katana. (laughs) Is he played by a Japanese guy? Nope! Not at all. Moving on. Sorry, folks. Get used to the idea of 
it uh, it doesn't make sense because reason. So, as this goes on, Ramirez decides to select a man of great destiny from among the rebels, and lo and behold, it just it just happens to be our Frenchish hero. So then, what happens is they dip their fingers in some magic electric tang, and then they pair bond or Vulcan mind meld or what's that crispy, crunchy, butterfingery fuck ever, and supposedly it's going it's going to magically bind them. Believe me, folks, keep this in mind because later it's not going to make sense, but it is going to start hurting a lot more. So, in the midst of a battle, in which, of course, they get their ass kicked because they're holding their super-secret meetings in a big ship that's crashed in the middle of a giant fucking desert, um, they're captured and put on trial. Here's the brilliant idea that Katana comes up with for a sentence. Hold on to your butts, kids, because here's where it's going to get interesting. Basically, what's going hap- to happen is the priests are going to send are going to sentence all the immortal rebels be exiled and reborn on Earth, where they're going to be immortal and chase down the prize of omnipotence. And then when they win, they can make the decision to either grow old on Earth or come back, or come back to this shithole that other shitholes happen to think, think is the lowest of all shitholes and live out the rest, of their, the rest of their life there. So, Katana gets rid of, gets rid of them, Sends them there. Original 1986 film happens, and then all this, and then all this happens. That is everything that got cut out of the Renegade version. It doesn't. The Renegade version doesn't make much more sense, but it at least makes some sense. It's marginally less stupid. It's better in the. It's better in the way that I imagine a sharp kick of the scrotum would hurt slightly less than having a full cue shoved up shoved up your ass, and then twisted. So, back home, back in 20, back in 24, the corporation discover, discovers that, hooray, the ozone has shielded its, has healed itself. The shield is no longer needed. I guess somebody just gave the ozone a phoenix down or a potion or something, or something or whatever. But they decide they're not going to tell the to tell the public any of that shit. Meanwhile, Katana decides for reasons that I'm sure make sense after enough blows to the head with a claw hammer that for some reason the immortal that he exiled to Earth and is no longer a factor in anything anything on Zeiss cannot possibly be allowed be allowed to live. Because neglecting the fact that he's mortal now. He's going to die anyway. He then sends the two goddamn worst henchmen ever, who, by the way, also happens to be immortal, to go and to go and kill him. Um, after their their attack, somehow McLeod kills them both. Despite being being mortal, he still has another elect electrogasm. He gets gains the quickening, and he's young again. Reasons. And then some, and then somewhere, somehow, in all the sense of if you believe in fairies, clap your hands, he realizes, he realizes that screaming Ramirez's name, 
name to the heavens like he's like he's Rocky training to fight Drago will bring him back to life. Some damn how this works, which result which results in Ramirez reconstituting himself on the stage of a performance of Hamlet and proceeding to and proceeding to call the lead be called a shithead by the lead actor, which then leads to the somewhat funny line of of Sean Connery of all people having to ask what the shithead. If there's one thing that makes this movie worthwhile, it is that. Yeah. Sean Connery, James Epping Bond, having to ask, what's a shithead? You have to imagine that years later, when he was making the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, he would no longer have to ask that question. All he would have to do would be just turn 360 degrees, and he would just know, ah, shithead. Got it. Uh, so by that point, General Not a Japanese Sword has come to New has come to New York to dispense with Connor him, with Connor himself. Um, they both eventually start to adapt to their environment. There's a bit where Ramirez trades his diamond earring to a tailor for a gorgeous handmade suit suit of clothes because. That's a thing that happens all the time. Seriously, I'm going to go to the next Armani exchange store that I find, that I find and try to pay for a suit by just flipping on my iPhone and then running out in it while they're distracted. So, by that time, just because I want to keep this brain hemorrhage, this brain hemorrhage brief. And because once more, yes, nothing has made has made even the remotest bit of sense as they've tried to make this more complicated. Ramirez reunites with reunites with McLeod. They plan to take down take down the shield. Michael Ironside gets together with Doctor Cox, forges an alliance. Forges an alliance. Um, Eventually, of course, he ends up. Of course, Doctor Cox ends up getting ends up getting killed. Connery once more ends up getting ki- getting killed by channeling the power of the quickening. Some zombie Jesus with cupcakes fucking how into pushing a giant lowering fan upward so that Connor can get out, but thus killing himself in the process. McLeod and Katana fight. McLeod kills Katana. Kills Katana. And basically, movie's over. McLeod goes back to bullshit alien land with alien land with his new girlfriend. And we have the movie that establishes the trend of what would be wrong with every Highlander sequel to come, including this one. When your first movie declares there can be only one, every time you try to make a sequel after that, you're going to set yourself up for the joke that has plagued the final destination piece for years now. You really have no idea what those words meant, did you? In this case, it was a matter it was a matter of you really don't know how many one, do you? Because every single movie they now have to come up with a more complex, convoluted, out-and-out stupid 
You're just retcon to explain away why apparently, no, no, there is never, in fact, going to be the only one. There is never, ever, ever, ever. Very first movie was first movie was a lie. We're not going to explain why there's apparently one prize after another. Apparently, there's as many prizes in this series as there as there are a claw game at a carnival. Well, I've that, already... That, so, yeah, just uh, take all that, digest it, and then go drink whatever you have to to induce vomiting. Because you don't want to I've try already, to keep it I've down. already given my, um, my defense of it, like I said. There was... <laughs> But if you know, you're a surgeon, you can kind of go in there and extract the one thing about this movie that is somewhat salvageable. Uh, but uh, but otherwise, do you have any idea, like behind the scenes, what what possessed them to release this garbage and think it was a good idea? Yeah, I, I honestly uh, have no earthly, earthly clue. Um, well, what made somebody think there was actually a viable figure? Um, like I said, I mean, to give you some idea of some of the rating 10 reviews, this is one of the freshest few movies ever made that as of November 2014, according to Wikipedia, held a 0% Rotten Tomatoes rating. Um... <laughs> Based on twenty, yeah, based on based on twenty three reviews, uh, Roger Ebert gave this film a half a star out of four and called it the most hilariously incomprehensible movie I've seen many a long day. A movie almost awesome in its badness. Um, IGN gave it two out of ten and said, "Quote." How bad is this movie? Well, imagine if Ed Wood were alive today and someone gave him a multi-million dollar budget. See his imagination running rampant, bringing, bringing it, yeah, bringing in aliens, bringing yeah, bringing in aliens from outer space with immensely powerful firearms, mortals who bring each other back to life by calling out their names, epic duels on flying skateboards. Oh God, I forgot the flying skateboards and a blatant disregard for anything logical or previously established. Now you were starting to get closer to the vision of Highlander 2. Um, those are those are the main, the main ones. Um, another one is uh, filmcritic.com's Christopher Null said, Highlander has become a bit of a joke, and here's where the joke started. Incomprehensible doesn't even begin to explain it. It's the equivalent to a, hey, look over there gag. You look and the guy and the guy you want to beat up has run away and hit. Um, <laughs> uh, Real film reviews. David Nusser finally said it's hard to imagine Highlander to appealing to non-fans of the franchise as the film barely captures the sense of fun that was so prevalent in the original. Um, here's the thing, though. <clears throat> Apparently, uh, Sean dropped momentarily. We'll get him back uh, shortly. But we are going to start to wrap on this because I think uh, <laughs> I gave this a shot. <laughs> I, I gave 
I didn't realize how bad this was. Um, you know, certainly I've read, uh, I've read various reviews. I've read the wiki on it, and I was fascinated by that. But I mean, I used to watch uh, back when, when DVDs first came out um, and were accessible to the um, mainstream buying audience. I used to go to Tower Records, and I was really into like the something weird videos. Uh, the you know, B movies, the old drive-in movies, that sort of thing. So I've seen my fair share of bad, and uh, there was always, like I said, there's a catch value to them. There was always something to enjoy in in, in its badness, you know, that sort of Rocky Horror Picture uh, mentality. I think it's like, how bad could this possibly be? This is unfortunately Highlander Two falls into that category of being like not enjoyably bad. You know, there are some movies where they're so bad they're funny, you know, or so bad it's good. This is just bad. This is, you know, like bad enough to make me angry at <laughs> the movie and the people who put it together because I feel like it almost it almost insults the audience's intelligence in the sense of it seems like, you know, Adam Stanley gets accused of making movies that, that feel like Ponzi schemes and cash grabs. And to an extent, maybe he is guilty of that. But this one actually does feel like this. The Highlander Two does feel like it was just put out there because they thought, well, people are dumb and we'll go see it and they'll be fine because it says Highlander on it. Um, and you know, sci-fi is popular, right? Right? <laughs> okay, but you still have to make a decent movie. Hello? Hi, everybody. I'm back. Doug Fairley, small talk at site that not only can only one of us talk at a time, but one of us can even be connected to the damn show at the time. So... Yeah, I actually have no worthy idea what Mark was saying because I kind of went talking for a while before I realized that I had in fact been taken, been taken off. Um, I yeah, Ben. Um, hang on, I'll look. I'll look up a, what Ben and Jack's character are going to be talking. Okay, Mark's back, and Ben. We and we've been asked by Ben to plug the source material on so far, Ben. All right, I was just I was just talking about before uh, you dropped off, and I brought you back on again. That this doesn't even fit into like the so bad it's good category. This just feels like uh, the producers sort of threw together shit and didn't care about the product they were putting out there, and were sort of trying to like, take advantage of an audience that you know was willing to trust them that they would put out a decent sequel to Highlander, and they they just put out a shit. That. Uh, that that's really the status the status part about it is in the course of the lead up to the show, I think that I actually had more fun watching. Uh, still there, Mark? Okay, there we go. Um, I I think I actually had more fun watching uh, Spoonie's excellent and hilarious two part review of it um, than I did watching the actual damn movie. <laughs> um, uh 
I, you know, at least with the first movie, I could sit and watch, uh, and afterward, I could listen to Nash talk about how great the movie I just watched was, and just go, I agree with you, Nash, you Illinois Jesus, you. Um, that is, in fact, an excellent movie. Um, but in this case, the only joy is just listening to somebody pretty much go full plinket on it. All right, before Skype cuts us off again, let's <laughs> start to wrap up here. Um, we uh, it, Next Thursday, the week, uh, week and a day from today, we'll be wrapping up with Highlander 3, 4, and 5. And from what I understand, this doesn't get any better. Um, but we shall see. Let's see, let's see if uh, happy-go-lucky, find the positive and everything, Mr. Mark Radlin can pick the bones of the next three movies and see if they're any salvageable. What? One of the movies has edge in it. <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe we're off to a good that's start a, here. That's about it. <laughs> um, anything to summarize with the uh, with the second one here? My, I've sort of said my piece on it at this point. I'd just be repeating myself. Is there anything you want to add, or uh, are you just about done here? the world would be better off if this nuclear bomb of a shit movie had never existed. Well said, well said. Okay. Um, so this, this, uh, so we'll get into plugs here. Uh, I was, as I said earlier, I was on source material on Monday. Um, there was more to the show than just my part of it, but my part of it was plugging, uh, pitching Batman movies. Took up almost an hour of the show. So, uh, and there'll be a replay of that tomorrow night here on the Rattleism Broadcasting Network. You can also uh, check out the audio on YouTube if you so desire. Uh, and I think I'm going to – that this might be a new feature here on the Rattleism Broadcasting Network, and I'm doing a lot of this, that if I get inspired to come up with an idea for a movie or a series of movies, then I'm going to sit down and record – my thoughts, and uh, throw it up on the network here and throw it up on YouTube. Not official, it's not a new show or anything. It's just uh, I don't have an agent. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have really any access to Hollywood, and I don't know how else to get this stuff out of, out of me. Um, but I, occasionally I come up with some pretty wacky ideas that I want people to listen to. And, hey, look, if the Twitter account shit my dad says could garner the author of television, I don't see why I can't at least, you know, cl- continue to clutter up YouTube with, uh, with with audio and a picture set to it, right? Come on. So uh, look for more of that in the future. I may go back and record some of the ones that we've already talked about, uh, just make them available for people like my Fantastic Four trilogy idea. I have been talking about Hulk movies now since I fucking started the Rattlejim Broadcasting Network, so maybe uh, there'll be a, a feature where I can get that on on there as well. So right now it's just uh, the Batfleck uh, pitches. So go check that out. Um, and then uh, next Thursday we'll conclude a look at the Highlander movies. Um, and the week after that, Robert Cooper and I will be returning to the Mel Hammer of Doom and we'll be reviewing the new Clutch album. And that's all... I have to plug right now. If you're wondering, am I still involved with the Casual Heroes? Uh, the answer is meh. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I didn't record with them last week. I'm not recording with them this week. I don't know when I'll be recording with them again. I'm not. I'm not really making any plans one way or the other. Sean, you got anything? Oh yes, I do. For a change, I actually do have a plug here. You see, all this time that I've been kind of aimlessly wandering around Phoenix, keeping myself relatively quiet, not really saying much on the Rod and Broadcasting Network Facebook account or all the other social medias, what I've actually been doing is I've kind of been recuperating. As I said before, 2015 was not a great year from me. It wasn't great personally. It wasn't great professionally. It wasn't great on the podcast. However, a few friends of mine and I got talking, and we think we've come up with an idea to spark a bit of a renaissance. Also, something that's going to add a little something special to the Roderich and Broadcast. A brand new podcast idea that I've had for a while. It's something that's along the lines of some of my favorite podcasts I've been listening to for a long time that are more varied in their scope. A little more anachronistic. A little bit broader. They're still a lot of fun. Uh, shows like uh, Good Mythical Morning, uh, Smosh, the Co-Optional Podcast, Nerded Third. And what happened was I was talking to my good friend, Jeremy Holsoff, who has been, who is someone who you might remember from guesting with us on Litchfield Live, and we were talking about Orange Black. He's been a friend of mine for many years. And an even longer-time friend of mine that you all have never met, my good friend, Ann. And we decided that there's enough nerdy, fun stuff to talk about between the three of us that, hey, why couldn't we fill up 90 minutes of just random geeky chatter and the odd regular segment? So we decided that we'd come up with our very own equivalent to, well, a little something like, uh, I don't know, I don't know how you describe it. We're, we're not quite the Today Show because, quite frankly, none of us is that late. Uh, we're not really Conan or Jimmy Fallon or even Stephen Colbert because none of us is really quite all that interesting. Uh, if anything, we're just... Three geeks who like to talk about the geeky stuff that we love. So we decided to come up with a new dirty variety brand new show called The Power of Three. It's going to be hosted by the three of us along with the odd specialty guests here and here and there. We're going to be talking TV, gaming, movies, music, books, whatever happens to strike our fancy that week or whatever happens to be in the news. We look for that sometime this February on the Rodelich in Broadcasting Network. All right. So with that said, I think we're going to uh, get out of here for the night. Um, one thank you folks for tuning in. Again, we got one more show next week, uh, Thursday, and then uh, in the month of October, we'll be looking at Jaws. And I've never seen Jaws. I know that, that, that Blue Robert... Winfrey's mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> never seen it, so uh, we'll see what I'll, I'll see what all the hubbub is about. So we're we'll looking forward to that, and that's it. So uh, for I'm stalling because I'm trying to 
Fuck the damn outro music. There we go. Sean right. Comer. The name is Sean Comer. Thank you. <laughs> for Sean for Sean Comer, for Benjamin Cologne, our illustrious title card artist, I am your mandated reporter, Mr. Mark Radlitz. This has been a long road to ruin. We'll see you in a week and a day. Happy birthday, Melissa. Be well, be safe, and behave.